0: the dawn stop all the clocks i just got the news that my baby wants to, rock. All she wants to do is
1: rock welcome back you're listening to money for nothing i'm saxon baird and i'm with sam backer today we're going to be talking about jeffrey epstein no i'm just kidding we're gonna be talking about king records and we'll be talking to author john hartley fox who wrote the book, King of the Queen City The Story of King Records I had heard of King Records Before doing this podcast, but I knew very little About it, and actually Sam was the one Pushing for us to do this episode And the more I learned about it The more I realized like how important it was To like do an episode like this Particularly, kind of what's been going on With the uh, Police brutality Reaction And riots and everything, and there's been a lot of like Discussion about, like Knowing the history of black Americans And, like, expanding your knowledge And this is doing that In a way But, like, why don't you go ahead and talk about More about, like, why you wanted to Do a podcast, and an episode, rather About King Records
2: Yeah, so, I mean We were really interested in doing um There's been a lot of really important Discussion about um, Equity in the music industry And about who gets paid And about how the industry is structured and the ways in which popular music in the United States has been for the past, I mean, really 120 years. But like um, in, in terms of uh, a reliance on, on, on black artists, at least last 80 years, really based around a set of musicians instead of communities that have not reaped the financial benefits that black musicians just have not been paid Given how the enormous cultural, um, enormous fucking import of what they've um, brought to the table and of the amazing music that's been produced out of those communities. So as a way to try to understand at least some of that, we wanted to take a look at, in some ways, like uh, the originary moment for a lot of these dynamics. And uh, clearly black music has been crucial to the broader structure of, of American music since For literally forever, but there's a kind of crucial moment in the 1940s and 1950s when not white musicians playing kinds of black music, not kind of copies of copies of copies hitting the mainstream record-buying public, when you actually get black artists playing black music crossing over into what's becoming a very new mainstream. And... It's a really important moment both for what happens, uh, n- namely that, and, and for what doesn't happen, which is like black record label ownership, like publishing rights, all kinds of stuff. And so in the kind of framing that, we wanted to look at some of these independent labels. And King is a really fascinating example of a whole lot of those things. Um, as you'll hear, it's based in Cincinnati. It's integrated um not in its ownership but in a lot of different levels of the music industry
1: and i think also it just challenges maybe like popular narratives or perception about what you were hinting at about these cities or these regional areas which have like a legacy of music and i think for like the casual music fan or even like the not so casual music fan i don't think that cincinnati is generally known or seen as being a major hub of Really, uh, various types of music that would go on to become that would go on to be extremely popular in the fifties and sixties, and we're talking, you know, about everything from country music to R and B to rock and roll. And I also think that the reason why we wanted to talk about King Records is because they're kind of—I don't want to say the missing link, but an oftentimes overlooked link. To the household names of like Motown and Stax and Sun and Chess Records,
2: so I mean it's really complicated, right? Um, and I think King, the story of King Records, gets at this complexity, right? Because this is these are like crucial musical texts. These are slices of music that change the way music works in America. That like are um, like critical to the evolution of black music. But they also emerge out of this like complicated cross-racial exploitative environment Um, and the dynamics that are at play there are dynamics that really remain at play in the rest of the 20th century and king records and the story of king records is just like a perfect distillation of so many so much of that Um, and it kind of blows my mind like how early and how universal these dynamics are
1: also i think that when we think about indie labels which is like the common word in which we use and, you know, that could span a whole history of different labels. But when we think about indie labels, I I personally, and I'm sure I speak for a lot of listeners out there or music fans out there, I've never really thought about the history in America of independent labels. And King Records is really one of the first independent labels to, like, really thrive. And its business model also does not necessarily reflect our idea of like what an indie label is, but it really was sort of the beginning. And it also ties back to our previous episode about uh, the WPA and the federal music project in the 1940s, because it was also what was happening, which we didn't mention in the last episode, but what also was happening is that there was an opening that allowed for independent labels to exist. And obviously John Harley Fox, our interview today, we'll be talking more about that.
2: Yeah, let's, let's go to John.
0: They say a love book will get you at the age of 43. I'm not telling my age, but something got a hold of me. I'm just craving some love in the old-fashioned way. Honey, lend an ear and listen to all I have to say. Why don't you haul off and love me one more time? Why don't you squeeze me?
1: I really enjoyed the book. Um, And maybe, you know, Sam and I really were interested in speaking to you because we feel that King Records is this great link to the sort of what became this unfathomable popularity of R&B and soul and rock and roll and even country that you'd see later you know, into the late 50s and 60s and beyond. But that perhaps as a label, it's a little overlooked when compared to the sun and chess and Motowns and stacks of the world, which kind of feel like household names. So we really wanted to kind of shine a light on this and kind of really uh, delve into it. So maybe to start... Um, it makes sense to to give us a taste of Sid Nathan, uh, founder of King Records, who's this sort of ultimate, bullheaded, resourceful American entrepreneur type from this era. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about him and maybe explain how unlikely of a character he is to have played such a pivotal role in really promoting marginalized music at the time in America.
0: Yeah, Sid Nathan was a native of Cincinnati, born, I think, around 1905 or something. And he was... uh, Kind of a ne'er do well, or not a ne'er do well, but a never succeed kind of guy. He he tried a lot of things. He he uh, managed big time wrestlers, and he uh, ran kind of a crooked shooting gallery concession at an arcade. And he uh, he went to Florida to get into the. He thought Cincinnati wasn't working for him, so he went to Florida to get in the photo finishing business, but it was the, turned out to be the worst year ever for Florida tourism, so that didn't work out. So he went back to Cincinnati, and um, he opened up a used record store, because he didn't, couldn't really think of much else to do, so he opened up a used record store, and because he was located near the radio station WLW in Cincinnati, a lot of the entertainers on that station, became his customers, and then became his friends. He was not very musically inclined himself. I've heard that he played drums, and he's listed as co-writer on a lot of songs, but I I think that that was probably just a commercial cut-in rather than a creative contribution on his part. But he learned... I think because he was a probably lower middle class uh, Jew living in Cincinnati where that was kind of a rarity, I think he had kind of a natural affinity for outsiders. And I think that was intensified some at the record store because his customers were both uh, country entertainers and, but also black entertainers on WLW. So he began to get kind of a first-hand notion of how and why people bought records. And he found out that white people bought records by black entertainers and vice versa, which was pretty much counter to the prevailing conventional wisdom in the record industry. So I think he kind of realized early on that it was sort of a class thing i think that in the south and in the midwest poor people were poor people whether they were black or white that poor black people and poor white people had more in common than you know poor whites and rich whites they all listened to the same music and back in the back out of the cities at least they uh, played music together because there usually weren't that many musicians in any given area so they, of course, played together at dances and parties. So I think Sid realized, when he sort of decided that he would maybe get into the record business, he realized that there was a large, untapped market for the kinds of records that the major labels weren't doing at the time. They the uh, Major labels had really contracted during the, or contracted during the uh during the depression and they were only doing kind of guaranteed hit makers which left most of the country musicians and most of the uh blues and w- what came to be called r&b musicians kind of left them out in the cold
1: right right yeah right. so 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 why so what just for you know our listeners who aren't as, necessarily as familiar with uh, king records can you just explain real quick, like, what, what kind of music was that, that that wasn't necessarily as popular? Like, What are we talking about, and how was it viewed back then?
0: Well, the kind of music that Sid was interested in doing was you know, what he called music of the working man, which would have been country music, which would include uh, Western swing and would come to include bluegrass in a few years. Also, black music, um, blues and especially black gospel, especially black gospel quartets. They were about the first kind of black music that he recorded, kind of as a test. So he, uh, under the rubric of hillbilly music and race music, which were the charts in, in Billboard at that time, it kind of included everything but the pop top 40. He didn't do a whole lot of jazz, but he did do some, but he did virtually every other kind of vernacular music, country, blues, rhythm and blues, jump blues, black gospel music, uh, even some preachers on occasion. He just thought anything anything that wasn't being covered, he thought he might make a dollar out of it.
1: Right, right. And, and maybe, maybe just sticking with him for a little bit... Um... Can you give us a little taste of uh, his demeanor? Because while you said that he was maybe uh, open to speaking to outsiders and dealing with outsiders and working with them, he wasn't exactly the most easygoing type of guy.
0: No, Sid was kind of a terrible tyrant. Um, But but he also, you know, it's a weird thing. Everybody talks about, his gruff obscene coarse demeanor but everybody seemed to like him you know he was he was crude he uh smoked big fat stinky guitars he was short and fat with very thick you know coke bottle kind of glasses and he uh i think by the time he was running King Records, he, he didn't really give a shit about much of anything. He realized that the powers that be in Cincinnati were never going to accept him, were never going to accept his label or the music he did, so he just kind of created his own little world in which he was the king. He was abrasive to people, he would bust into recording studios, yelling at everybody and just kind of destroying the mood and he just incredibly coarse and what what you would think you'd think he'd be this personality would be the kind of guy that everybody hated and avoided, but as soon as they were done in the session, say that he'd just busted up, he'd take everybody to the corner bar and buy everybody drinks and dinner and tell jokes and hold court for hours on end, so he seemed to uh, I think some of the people that he dealt with realized that he was just his medium was bullshit and he used that i don't I don't think he necessarily felt a lot of what he said it was some of it was uh, designed confrontational to just Get people on edge so they would produce better in the studio. You know, Grandpa, jo- Grandpa Jones used to talk about Sid would make him so mad that he'd just run back into the studio and say, "Well, I'm going to show that son of a bitch. I'll just, I'll knock him out with this." So he'd do that, and Sid would just be sitting in the control room, kind of grinning to himself, knowing that in this case it had worked. He had inspired Grandpa Jones to do something he might not have been able to do otherwise. But he was he was brash, he was full of himself, he had a lot of confidence. Um but he also he was he was a very strange combination of people, you know, like Walt Whitman said, I contain multitudes. And Sid definitely contained multitudes of you know, for both good and bad, he was just If you were in His world, you sort of accepted that it was His world.
2: city and cincinnati is kind of in in, in the, the back of of so much of this i'm wondering if you could talk about it a little bit what was it like at that time who who were the the groups of people who were coming into the record store um who were the powers that be kind of how did sid fit into this um kind of i guess industrial midwestern city
0: okay well he really didn't um <clears throat> cincinnati was again kind of an unusual place um it's, it's been called the most northern-southern city. According to, say, the Civil War and conventional geography, the south ends at the Ohio River, which is right in Cincinnati. So it was kind of at a crossroads both north, south, and east-west because it was you know, between Chicago and uh, New York, so you could catch people there, and then from the north and south. It was a very conservative city, a very Republican city, and I think you could probably fairly call it a a fairly racist city. Um, There were a lot of blacks coming into Cincinnati from the South, from Alabama and uh, Tennessee, and there were even more uh, migrants coming in from Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, uh, Virginia the South, White people leaving the farms to come to Cincinnati for industrial jobs, so Cincinnati was about the southernmost place you could cash in on those uh, industrial jobs. They call and uh, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and there's uh, the highway there, uh, Route 25. It's Interstate 75 now, but it was 25, and they called that the Hillbilly Highway. That people leaving people leaving the South would sort of Basically, go as far north as their car and their finances would take them. Cincinnati was the first was the first stop on the trail, and Detroit was kind of the promised land. But then, throughout Ohio, uh, from south to north, you get Hamilton, Middletown, Dayton, Columbus. until they until they get to Detroit, so there was a steady influx of people coming into Cincinnati, um, coming in for jobs, and after the war end, after World War II ended, they were just uh, coming to live there. The music scene, uh, Cincinnati was a music center primarily because of WLW radio. It was a at a, at a time when the legal power was. 50,000 watts for a radio station. WLW got a special permission to broadcast at 10 times that power, 500,000 watts. So you could literally hear WLW not only everywhere in this country, but in big parts of the world. Homer and Jethro, or uh, Jethro Burns of Homer and Jethro, used to tell me that they'd get fan mail from Australia and New Zealand you know, people who heard them on the radio. So, because of WLW, a lot of entertainers came to that area. In in country music, you had people like the Delmore Brothers, Merle Travis, Grandpa Jones, Hank Penny. And then on on the black side, you had not so much people who would record for King very soon, but you had even people as big as Fats Waller. Um, So... Oh, it was known as an entertainment capital, and it was also a convenient place to work out of because uh, you know it was on a crossroads north and south and east and west. Also, I think another probably minor factor, but Billboard magazine was located in Cincinnati at that time. So a lot of the tastemakers who wrote for Billboard lived there, and uh, so Sid and King had access to them as well.
1: Well, sticking with this historical context, I also really want to, before we go any farther, talk about th- what was the what was the, what was going on at the time that allowed for the formation of independent music labels, and you know allowed for King to sort of really flourish, because uh, you know I, I, as far as I'm aware at the time, those sort of independent labels was a kind of a relatively new. Phenomenon. So, could you maybe just take us through that? You know, how did what was going on historically that would allow for something, somebody, like a place, sorry, a label like King to really uh, to really flourish?
0: Sid Nathan started King in in 1943. It was he had no way of knowing this, but it was actually the perfect time to try to do it because entering the war, World War II, um, the recording industry was pretty much confined to three or four major labels. There weren't really what we now call independent labels working. But two things happened then during the war. One was the supply of shellac got cut off. Shellac came from uh, the Pacific, and it was a crucial ingredient in making 78 records. So that supply was cut off, which meant that the total number of of recordings minimized also. It wasn't entirely cut off the slack, but mostly. So there were fewer records coming out to begin with. And then the second thing was that the American Federation of Musicians had called, an, had called a strike, basically, of recording musicians that no, no record labels could record until they signed a, a new contract with the union the musicians' union felt that radio and jukeboxes were cutting into the work for live musicians, which was true. And the union demanded that the major labels renegotiate their contracts with them to take, to take uh, note of that fact. The major labels just kind of laughed in their face and said, "Yeah, right. Like, like a union of musicians is going to tell us what to do." Well, so that that situation held then, with nobody could make recordings. You could not make recordings until they signed with with the uh, with the label. So while the major labels were standing firm and going to try to bust the union, somebody like Sid Nathan looked at the situation and said, "Well, hell, yeah, I don't have any problem with that. I'll sign a con I'll sign a contract with the union." So the independents were the first to do that. They came to terms with the union, so the union allowed them to record. By the time that the major labels realized what was going on, the window had been opened and people like Sid Nathan saw that that this strike actually gave them an in where they wouldn't have been able to get in before. So they settled with the uh, Union and King was one of the first to do this, one of the first to become an independent label. And what this meant then practically was the major labels were sort of caught on their heels by this and because of both the war and the recording band, the majors didn't have much in the way of back catalog that they could put out to compete with these new records that the independents were coming out with. So the And also, the the taste had so contracted that only a few guaranteed hit makers were still making records. And Sid realized that, God, there's all these people on the radio that don't have record contracts. There's all these people who were already... Proven entertainers, and I bet I can get them to sign up and make records for me. Well, as it turned out, most radio stations feared recording companies, so they didn't permit their uh, they didn't permit their paid entertainers to make records. So Sid had to kind of work work through the back door on some of those things, but it was the historical accident. I think three things actually I said two, but it was the lack of shellac, uh the musicians' strike, and then, with people coming with soldiers and sailors coming home from the war, they found that tastes had become regional tastes had become more national, and that there was a lot bigger audience now for country music and forms of black music that people had heard in the service that they maybe had never heard before. So there was, I think, a new audience, too, that was ready for new styles of music, new artists, and kind of harder-hitting musics that they had developed a taste Um, for. In some
2: ways, then, a a label like King could... In some ways, it it seems like they could almost exploit that gap because of their size, right? That they didn't need to put out a record that was in order to be profitable, put out a record that's going to sell across the whole country. They could put out records that are going to sell to specific smaller pockets where they knew there was already an audience.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Two two things about a label like King, they could they could move more quickly than a major label could. And they also, well at that time there were national hits, but there were still regional hits. You know, you might have records in 10 or 12 pockets around the country that it could be a hit there and nowhere else. But, a a quick-moving label like King that was small and with almost zero layers of bureaucracy to get through, if one of your talent scouts or one of your distributors heard a record say that was breaking in Los Angeles, You could go ahead and record that in Cincinnati with one of your own artists and get that out on the market and probably have a southern, an upper south, midwestern hit before the other record ever got out of California.
1: Yeah, that explains a lot to me because in reading your book, I noticed there was like a lot of covering of covering of covering. (laughs) Yeah, and but I I understand now that actually part of that was just actually like a regional thing.
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, if, if there was a big hit most labels would try to cover it with, with one of their own acts because the belief then was that the song was the important thing and the artist was less important, so that people would buy the record because of the song. And it didn't necessarily matter if it was Cowboy Coppess singing it or Gene Autry singing it, you know. So that, so you had a lot of regional regional hits. And King also... They had, this This might be out of the uh, narrative or the chronological that you want to do, but I'll go ahead and mention it now, that one of the things that King had was they didn't rely on independent outside distributors, like a wholesaler that handles a bunch of different labels and gets them into the retail. King, or Nathan, realized that his his main stroke of genius was the more things that he could do himself, the better it would be. The fewer opportunities for mistakes there would be, the fewer opportunities for somebody to rip him off. So instead of contracting with independent distributors, like most labels did, he set up his own distribution label that eventually had, I think, 39 branch offices around the company, I mean, around the country. And in addition to that, he had a fleet of trucks that, you know, these little panel trucks, he'd put a driver and pack them full of records, and then that driver would set out on his route, going from small town to small town, up into hollers, up into black coal mining communities. So they uh, they were pretty close to ground level. So they could, you know, the, the people in... Uh, out in the country there there weren't really record stores then except in cities that records were sold in furniture stores radio stores barber shops groceries drug stores you know wherever and what these king guys would do was they would go to every single one of those places any place where people bought records they would send a guy to and he would go in you know take some records in and would sell some, you know, maybe not a huge amount, but would sell some and then he'd get back in and go on to his next stop until the truck was empty and then he went back to Cincinnati to refill it.
1: Yeah, I think in the book you I think in the book you mentioned that it's almost like a complete vertical integration uh, that he eventually gets to, but you know, um but, but before before we even go all the way into that, there's 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 a he, there's a lot of success that happens that leads to him getting to that point and I think that a huge Uh, pivotal point in the development of king records is the realization that black music sells could you maybe talk a little bit about that like how he came about to integrating more black music into the catalog but also like what was the sort of general interpretation about whether or not black music could sell or not at the time
0: people thought black music could sell but only to black people Sid knew from working at his used record store that that wasn't necessarily true. And also, if you just think about it for a minute, in the South, until like the 50s, there weren't really radio stations that programmed black music for black people. So black folks in the South heard the same country music that white people did. You know, they heard, they heard pretty much all the same music. So, so there was crossover. When Sid started his label, though, it was going to be a hillbilly label, um, basically using talent from WLW. He realized, though, pretty early on, that, you know, we're leaving a lot of money on the table here. Black people do buy records. So he went into it with kind of uncharacteristic caution. He started a, a second label called Queen, that um, was going to be devoted to black music and the first releases on Queen were black gospel quartets and kind of jump bluesy things by people like Bull Moose Jackson and uh, Lucky Melander, things like that. After a pretty short time of having King and Queen as parallel labels he realized that that was that didn't really reflect his thinking that they were two completely separate styles of music and it didn't really make economic sense that you're leaving all this this music and all this money on the table so he, despite warnings that you can't have both black and white music on the same label he decided just to merge it all into King, which I viewed kind of, was was kind of a promotion of sorts for the artists on Queen. They were, you know, it. he was sort of going past Plessy versus Ferguson saying, you know, we're not going to have separate but equal. We're going to have one label now. Everybody will be sold by the same distributors. We'll, we'll handle everything in hand. And he had success with that, um... The black gospel records were quite popular in the Upper South. Things like Bull Moose Jackson were popular. And there was a whole kind of revolution in uh, R&B music at the end of the war that just really burgeoned out into a successful music. So King did have success with those, and, you know, success begets success. He would... The more people who sold, the more he expanded the label and I think one of one of his genius things was that this is kind of an oversimplification, but he looked at music and saw it's all the same thing. you know Hank Williams and Muddy Waters are the same thing really they're the they're the flip side of the same coin they're singer songwriters singing a deeply regional kind of music, but it's essentially the same thing. Uh, Dixieland jazz and bluegrass are essentially the same thing. It's, It's all music. And while he recognized genres and styles for marketing, he didn't necessarily... well, he didn't at all view them as ironclad rules for in the studio. I mean, he had... Grandpa Jones told me that Sid asked him one time if if he would record with Bull Moose Jackson. You know, Bull Moose was a a black saxophone jump blues singer. So Sid had the idea of putting Grandpa Jones and Bull Moose Jackson together. And, you know, Grandpa said, Yeah, sure, hell, I'll do it. Because one of the things I found that most of these guys, they were so hungry for hits that they'd do anything. You know, they, they would record, they would try any idea that, no idea was too crazy, and a saxophone banjo record in 1946 might have been just what the world needed, but for one reason or another that didn't happen. But he, he did mix, he, he crossed racial divides by mixing things. He had his white artist cover records that had been hits for his black artists, and vice versa. He used uh, black producers and black artists on country records, which you wouldn't think would have worked in the 40s, but it it seemed to work fine. And he, uh, I think, you know, just seeing it all as, you know, spokes of a wheel, maybe, or, or cousins in a big family or something, that he saw that this was all related and that a lot of the dividing up, and segregating and rules were all just not only arbitrary but counterproductive and bullshit. There'll
2: be no detours in heaven No
0: rough roads along the way I'm using my Bible for a road My last stop is heaven some sweet day
2: so one of the the things that seemed like remarkable and again like i can't one of the real pleasures was like uh reading this book with um, like youtube and spotify open and just running into just extraordinary track after extraordinary track almost none of whom i had really heard before except some of the, you know the really big hits and, and and one of the things that's amazing about this label it seems is that their ability to find a pretty wide variety of talent, and that that seems to me to be kind of like what you're saying tied to to this very ground level distribution um but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about you know how did artists come to king how um how did they find this extraordinary um stable of talent some
0: of them came in through w l w but uh Sid Nathan also had in addition to a network of uh, salesmen and distributors, he had a network of talent scouts and producers uh, all over the country, people like Johnny Otis, Lucky Millinder. He had people working musicians and just roving talent scouts that were looking for talent. And especially with, let's say the situation was a little different with white and black artists, but with black artists, there weren't that many options open to them. So, even even the ones who knew they wanted to record, the musicians who knew they wanted to record, didn't generally have any idea how to find a record company or how to, how to make that happen. So, somebody like, say, Johnny Otis happened to be in Detroit and went to a talent show, which they would do. You know, they'd, they'd turn over every stone and he went to a talent show, and discovered, discovered, I guess is one way of saying it, he heard Little Willie John, Jackie Wilson, and Hank Ballard, and said, who were all teenagers. And he said, hey, you guys want to make records? And sure, you know, of course we do. So, you know, he would, he would coach them and sign them, and then bring them down to Cincinnati to make records. So that was one way they would, they would find artists, that they had people continually traveling around the country going places. Uh, like Ralph Bass found James Brown at a club in Georgia. I mean, he didn't exactly discover him because Chess Records was hoping to sign him too. But that was Ralph, Ralph Bass, just in the course of his travels, heard about this young guy, James Brown. So he went to see him and offered him a contract. Um a lot of the country artists would come through because they were working country stations and you know it was still live music mostly on radio then so these musicians would would move around from place to place and in addition to w l w there was another uh big station in cincinnati w c k y and then there was um big stations in Dayton and Middletown, too. So a lot of country entertainers came through that area just working. And then it was uh, just logical for them to hook up with King because they would... They King had a, a lesser network of white scouts because it seemed like white, white bands and white singers had a leg up because... There was more industry infrastructure in their style of music. It wasn't that hard for a young white musician to get heard at a record company. So they, you know, and as, it of course is, as, as King became more popular, you know, people, musicians would see that label and they'd say, oh, okay, well, I'm, so-and-so got on there. I'm going to see if I can do it because I'm better than him. So they had a lot of talent scouts out, and they had, I think, probably a a, a pretty open-door in-house audition policy, too. Like, if you shut up with your guitar unannounced, saying, I'm, I'm the next Hank Williams, I want to sing you my songs, somebody would, somebody would listen to you. So they, I think, part of it was they, they knew that music... Because it sold everywhere meant that it could come from anywhere. And that there were, it was almost a, well not almost, it was a buyer's market for a record label then because so many people wanted to make records. And so few, at at that point at least in the 40s, so few record companies existed to make their dreams come true that an that one as aggressive as King... Could really kind of corner the market to an extent and at least get, not corner the market, but at least get, be on a first call kind of thing. That you're one of the handful of labels that an artist might think of that they'd want to record for.
1: So
2: so once they did come into King, um, one thing that was really interesting is is it seemed like um, while, while the label was really open to to what different kinds of sounds could sell, They also did a fair bit of, um, I guess, trying to mold artists for different potential markets, right?
0: I think mostly they let people do what they wanted to do. They took, for all of Sid Nathan's busting into the studio and all that, they pretty much let people do what they wanted to do. King, uh, Sid Nathan's suggestions tended to come in more in terms of material because he had several publishing companies and he wanted to publish the song that was on every record. Basically, he wanted to own the publishing for everything that he recorded. So, he st- that was another way he was different from, from labels. He realized that publishing was, was where the money was. So, he started that and he wanted to, uh, maximize his his song catalog so he was always trying to get his artists to do songs that he held the copyright on but other than that i think he he pretty much let people succeed or fail with their own thing
2: yeah no the 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 publishing is fascinating because i mean especially in that kind of um cover song market and especially in relationship to the majors that seems crucial right Because if, let's say, Elvis covers your song and sells, you know, uh, uh, two million copies of it, if you've got the publishing rights on that, that's huge for a label.
0: It is. And publishing rights, you know, don't... Publishing rights aren't artists. They don't leave for another label. They don't die. They don't quit music. I mean, publishing's forever, as it turns out. Nobody thought that, though, you know, at the time. I mean... Ralph Peer back in the 20s, he was this great talent scout who discovered everybody. Well, he worked for RCA Carter
2: v- family, right?
0: Yeah, Carter family, Jimmy Rogers, and on and on. He worked without a salary. He told RCA, I'll, I'll do this work for you for free as long as I get to publishing on every song. <laughs> <laughs> he was the first person to really realize that, you know, publishing goes on forever. And if I can get ten people to record this song, it's way better than having one record on it. So he was the first to demonstrate that. But Sid was one of the Sid Nathan was one of the first of the, say, post-war independents to, really make hay with that approach. And you know, just it was, it was really prescient on his part because he realized that copyrights could, or a song, a good song could be recorded. In every style, every conceivable style, it could be recorded again and again and again, and you didn't have to split the money with anybody. It came into you. You were the record company, and you were the publishing company. So, to him, doing it any other way would have just been giving money to somebody that he didn't need to. I
2: mean, but but this is also one of the areas, like traditionally, and and. King, it maybe less so than than places like chess, but where kind of long standing accusations against the primarily, um, you know, the, about the power differential between these primarily white record company owners and especially black songwriters, right? Like, was there any tension about um, copyright and songwriting rights and and uh, um, you know uh, the 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 money that come from that?
0: I'm sure there was I mean nobody likes well one thing they they would do industry practice at that time you would often the song the artist or the songwriter would often cut in somebody else in exchange for getting the song recorded so you'll see a record company uh owner or a producer listed as the songwriter when that wasn't really the case but I think a lot of a lot of it was just gratitude at having a chance to make it. A lot of that comes from uh, honesty. Like, say, comparing King to a lot of labels like chess and whatnot. Sid, as far as I've been able to determine, was pretty much completely honest. You know, he he, he didn't fuck over his artists. He didn't rip them off. Um, which is not to say that he didn't occasionally skin him on a contract or something, but he, he's the, about the only record company owner I've ever heard of that there don't seem to be accusations of cheating. You know, I, I talked to a few people. Grandpa Jones is one. He has every royalty statement that he ever received. He kept him in a big box, and he's sure that Sid was completely honest with him I think that, that say and Sid was honest with his label with his artists in a way that most other independent labels or even major labels weren't. I there was what I perceived to be kind of a racist hierarchy at at chess. Yes, they recorded black music and yes uh you know they put a lot of money in a lot of black musicians' pockets. I think Leonard and Phil chess and Marshall chess all those, I think they were essentially racist. I think there was a a level of condescension to their artists that I don't think existed at King. so I think you know the combination of being financially honest and also trying to relate. Equally at eye level with your artists, instead of looking down. And like I, I've always been surprised when I read that Willie Dixon worked as a janitor at Chess Studios. You know, and he was writing half their hit songs, and they had him working as a janitor. And I thought, fuck, man, you you can do better for for the man than that. No, that that's a that's a really
1: that's really interesting what you're saying about Sid Nathan because I definitely feel. I feel the same way, you know, when you read through the history of this music, you, you oftentimes, you know, the dark side is that, you know, a lot of these musicians are being screwed over, but, you know, despite his uh, unsavory demeanor, he did seem like a fair guy.
0: He seemed like a fair guy, and words aside, a respectful guy. I mean, you, you can't excuse the bluster and the, and the jive that he laid on people, but I think he, there was an inherent Respect for his artists as, as fellow humans that was missing at some labels. I don't think... I mean, he wanted to make money off of them, but he, he appreciated their contributions, and again, I think because he viewed himself as an outsider, he felt that it was, it was part of his obligation to treat people square like that. You know, he, he didn't want to rip people off. I heard the news Blues. Have you heard the um, I mean,
2: it's also notable that he, um, he had an integrated workforce um, and, and uh, highly placed, you know, African-American workers uh, in kind of trusted positions of power in the company, right?
0: You know, the question of was, was Sid a racist or not? I've been thinking about that in preparation for this call because, you know, I've thought about this off and on for probably 30 years trying to figure it out. And because I've heard tapes of him at sales meetings where he will say just the most terrible things. But if you look at what the man did over his lifetime, um, Henry Glover, a uh, musician out of the South, uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, a black uh, musician, Sid Nathan hired him to be his A&R director to be basically kind of the musical brain of the outfit because he respected him. He respected his music. He respected the way he worked with uh, artists in the studio. So you got Henry there. You have all sorts of other... African American employees, Gene Red, say working in A and R a few years later, but all through the company there were black employees at every level. And during the war, late in the war, when uh, Japanese Americans out here in California were being sent to internment camps, Sid working through uh, some kind of church, I think in Cincinnati arrange for, like, 40 of those families to come to Cincinnati instead of entering an internment camp in, like, the deserts of California, come to Cincinnati, live in houses rented by Sid Nathan, and work for him at the company. Nobody in America was doing that, you know, publicly. Because these were people, like, I think that, you know, had already been ordered to internment camps that that he detoured. And he didn't do that for publicity because the publicity would have been bad, you know, had there been any. He just, he thought it was an injustice what was happening, and he realized there aren't many ways I can help, but this is one way I can help at least those 40 families. And he insisted that they be accepted into the workforce. He The, the King employment application asked a question um would you be uncomfortable working with or taking directions from someone of another race? And uh, if you answered yes on that, it wasn't ne- it didn't necessarily disqualify you. If they thought uh, if they thought you had promise and potential, they would call call you in and say, Hey, can you work on this? You know. It, this uh, you know bigotry is just it's a learned thing can you unlearn it can you work with if you work side by side with somebody can you can you learn from it and they had a a personnel director that they hired whose name escapes me it's in the book you know they wanted to hire him and he said he would do it on the condition that that he would have total autonomy over personnel policies and sid said yeah with with the accept, uh with the overriding rule that you know, I want to do everything that's right and everything that's fair. So he said, You'll have my backing throughout. And so they had all kinds of inner king organizations like softball teams and bowling, bowling teams, bowling leagues, all kinds of things like factories did back then. And it was in, you know, everybody, they didn't have a a picnic for black employees and for white employees. Everybody worked together. Or, I mean everybody partied together. And I think that would be a hard sell now, you know, but in 1940s Cincinnati, that was you know, that was downright fucking revolutionary. I mean, a lot of the you know, I don't think stacks say with their integrated business model. I don't think that could have worked without King first. And I think King broke a lot of ground in that because people in the recording industry had their eyes on King. They, they knew they knew that they tried wacky stuff and they wanted to they kept their eye on it to see if it worked. And I think that the the overall integration of the music was really helped along by King. And I, I don't think they get nearly enough credit for that, but I I don't think they get really nearly enough credit for anything really. So
2: so as you know, King has this you know period of kind of extraordinary popularity, um, especially for an independent label. It's one of the you know I think easily one of the top ten biggest labels in the country in in the the '40s and mid '50s, um, and, and then it seems to me that it kind of runs into some of of the limits of its business model a little bit almost that that some of the things that allowed it to thrive um in ways that no one thought it could or that it should also kind of make it hard to transition into kind of the next phase i mean it seems like by the late 50s you start having kind of black pop acts on major labels or on larger indies that are, like Atlantic, that are really designed for a national audience. Um, and and it seemed that, that King wasn't able to kind of um, compete in that new world in, in the same way that it had previously. Do you think that's accurate? Or?
0: Yeah, I think that's completely accurate um, for a number of reasons, Without. Although- the first being I, I or the most important i think being king and the other indies as they were showing that hey there is there is an audience and a market for this kind of music and in some cases a pretty big market so you can make a, in some cases you can make pretty good money well once they once the major labels saw that that was true they with their much deeper pockets basically yeah. lured you know, lured artists away, um, like RCA basically did with Elvis. I mean they didn't lure Elvis away but they bought his contract, but the major labels in at least Country and R&B are pretty much cherry-picking the most successful artists from the independents to go on their label where they can promise them a better shot at national success instead of regional success. That would be one factor. second factor was, by about 1953, King was essentially out of the country music business, um, for the reason I just said. Uh, the major labels had siphoned off all the, all the major country talent on King. With the exception of bluegrass, which was not yet desirable, or still isn't, but wasn't desirable to the major labels at that point, so King was sort of able to keep them. Another factor was, say by 1956 or 57, Sid had already been doing this for, what, 15 years, so he was kind of less interested in it, and as he had gotten more successful, he was pretty rich now, so he wasn't at the at the uh, offices every day. He spent part of each year in Florida. So I think it was just sort of a lack of uh, executive fire. People like Henry Glover and Ralph Bass, the, sort of the talent scout producers who had been so so good in the 50s went off on their own things so like just like the artists heading for major labels the his A&R people headed not necessarily to major labels but to other other ventures that were better paying by about that same time when James Brown started in the 50s within a very short time he was he was about the only artist on on King who was still who was still uh, selling records? but like you say, the business model that he had wasn't it, the business model that he constructed was set up at a need, at, at a need and out of poverty, at a time when he couldn't find and or afford people to record records, press records, make record jackets, get them in stores. Uh, so he did all that himself. And that scale was no longer viable uh, by about the mid to late 50s, too. I mean, distributors had gotten better, so you didn't necessarily have to do that in-house. You certainly didn't have to press your own records and uh, print your own record covers. A lot of that could be done way more cheaply, uh, externally. So he had a huge, a huge infrastructure that worked when you had enough hits to keep the pressing plants rolling, you know, 24 hours a day. But when you didn't have those hits, it just became a lot of uh, a lot of infrastructure that was costly to maintain and not all that uh, profitable anymore.
1: Uh, John Hartley Fox, thank you very much for talking to us. That was really, really great.
0: You're quite welcome. It It was a real pleasure. It was for me, too. I love talking about this stuff. Anytime.